Koshian Cast, the only podcast where Bible trivia counts as a sport. <laughs> My name is Matt, and joining me today is a very special guest, Matt. Hi! Hey, it's the tenth week of the summer anime season, Matt. And wow. I am going to cover all sports anime from September 3rd to September 9th. How about you? I would be glad to join you in said discussion. Okay, before that, do you, did anybody uh, write in with a question of the week this week? I got one from a Matt K from Indiana. Okay, and is he you? Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, go ahead, Matt. Let's hear Matt's letter. Okay, so uh, Matt K asks, um, are there any sports that you guys wish any uh, any anime studio would make an anime out of? Yeah. That definitely sounded like you were reading it and not coming up with it off the top of your head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Matt K., great question. What sports the most underappreciated sports? To be honest, uh, my, my first answer is cricket. Really? Um, I don't think it's likely because I can't imagine anyone's playing it in Japan. But then again, I didn't expect a rugby anime. Right. Um, yeah, I would say cricket just because I, I kind of like to use sports anime sometimes as a way for me to learn the rules of a sport. Not every sports anime is successful at teaching the rules of the sport, but uh, right. some, sometimes they are. And I would just like to learn more about how cricket works and some of the different strategies because, you know, it is a global sport, just right. not in the U.S. Um, and I think I think it could be pretty fun and, you know, the amount of power and speed that goes into a cricket match, I think it would be fun to see it animated. Not only that, if I recall, I think it's, it's like, it's a very different game from baseball, but it seems like it's kind of, de either baseball is derived from cricket or cricket well, is derived. They're, they're both sort of derived from a source game called Rounders uh, oh. from, from uh, the UK, uh, and sort of like Rounders just evolved in different ways in different countries to become different sports. But, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I was thinking polo myself. <laughs> like, as in on horses? Polo. Yes, because I would love to see an anime try and justify why there are so many different polo teams located all across Japan. Oh, yeah, like, oh, we're, we're part of the Sekigura Academy polo team. It's like, <laughs> sure you are. <laughs> sure you are. And there are just that many ranches located in Tokyo, aren't there? Oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, who's going to be the greatest polo team in Tokyo? That would be awesome. Yeah, that would, that would be hilarious. I'm like, it would be kind of a fun, I guess, difference in, in that world where maybe the Tokyo team, they're like the only polo team in Tokyo, and they right. have to f face like the uh, the gods of polo from Hokkaido or something. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. You can kind of you can make it the inverse underdog story where the small t where it's their uh, the big city team is actually the the underdog. Yeah. Well. All right. So I think what we need to do now is start writing letters to the nation of Japan and requesting I... some anime. <laughs> yeah. And who's that going to go to? I mean, Abe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, you want to kick it off with uh, "Welcome to the Ballroom" episode ten, Matt? Sure thing. So this episode is covering uh, the the finals of the Tenpei Cup. Uh, Hyoto and Shizuku go out to do their routine. However, Hyoto loses the rhythm during the, his uh, during his dance because he's so focused on Mako. Uh, then they move on to Tango, uh, where uh, the both uh, 
Tanara and Hyodo are dancing on as equals. But then in the third match, we have uh, Tanara kind of losing out to Shizuku because Shizuku is like, she was kind of made for the, for the slow foxtrot. Uh, and then the episode ends with the uh, with the final match of the finals beginning, or the the final yeah. uh, the final heat, uh, as the uh, with the uh, quick step, and they are going and Tadara is going to perform the routine that uh, Sengoku taught him. Yeah. Um. So this episode was it was all right. I didn't mind it too much. Um, Whoa, high praise. <laughs> I I appreciated getting some back some more backstory on Hyodo, I think mainly. Uh I was I was at least a little glad to see that it what like in they had a second flashback, or was this third flashback? Oh my lord, I don't even know. Um they had they had another flashback with Hyodo and Mako as kids in this episode. I did kind of appreciate seeing that a lot of Gaju's sort of resentment towards Mako was not inherently just based on her not like speaking out to him. Like, you know, it's like, oh well why didn't she just speak up to him? And it's like, well, okay, Gaju himself was going through a lot of societal pressure as well. Like, it didn't seem like he particularly minded dancing with Mako until everybody was starting to, like, talk about him. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it doesn't justify it, but at the very least, it's a bit more of a sympathetic reason. You know, there's kind of this sort of societal pressure for them to break apart. Though, when I say that out loud, it feels a little, forgive me for saying this, but a little incesty. Well, of course, because, I mean, the show has always kind of equated the d- dance partnerships as being like a husband and wife relationship. And then, right. like, you know, oh, you can't intrude on their relationship. You know, it's like, uh, so yeah, that's sort of obvious terrain. And then there's questions about like, oh, why does Mako want to be with Kaju? Whatever, whatever. I think it's kind of boring. Um, right. Just because, like... It's trying to, it's trying to elicit some sort of like shipping frenzy uh, with no real basis. Like I don't really care about the relationship between Gaju and Mako. Like I don't want to like see them work stuff out. I don't care. Right. He's yeah, supposed exactly. to be the bad guy. He was fun when he was the bad guy. Yeah, exactly. And it's like. I liked this a little better when it was showing, like, because Mako seems like such a better partner mm-hmm. for Tadara. Like, yeah, the two exactly. actually talk through their issues. They work things out together. They seem to be on the same wavelength. Yeah. But there's kind of this sort of unhealthy obsession with Shizuku in this series because, mm-hmm. so, uh, so kind like of on the part of everybody. <laughs> right. Like, I guess we're supposed to be... Because this episode kind of solidified that as well, actually. When Now that I'm kind of saying it out loud. Uh, You're learning to... a lot from saying things out loud right now. <laughs> <laughs> it helps me organize my thoughts. Yeah. Um, so just kind of hear me out on this. So... I... I okay. <laughs> so... Like, in this episode, we had a scene... You know, during the slow foxtrot, they mentioned that Shizuku's great talent when the... Or, like, one of the reasons why their slow foxtrot went so well was because they were... She was drawing out Gaju's potential. As a viewer, we're supposed to be rooting for Tadara here, right? Like, we are rooting for Tadara. And I think the inevitable 
goal here is for Tadara to finally pair up with Shizuku. Sure. Um, so Shizuku here is being used as sort of a reward for if they manage to win this, uh, this, uh, this dance, basically, this competition. Um, so I guess what I find unnerving about that is the fact that Mako has clearly shown herself to be a much better emotional support for Tadara, but we're supposed to be rooting for her to get back with her husband so Tadara can get can pair up finally with Shizuku. By and husband, he, did you mean brother? Or did, oh, did I actually say husband? Yeah. My bad. <laughs> I was wondering if that was a slip or... <laughs> no, that was 100% a Freudian slip, I think. The show is making okay. me think it, but... Yeah, right. <laughs> but I get what's unnerving to me about that is that we have no reason to believe that Shizuku and Tadara should actually be paired up beyond the fact that we know that Shizuku can really help improve Tadara's ability to dance. Exactly. Based off of this based off of the slow fox trot. Mm-hmm. And you know, what it's saying is don't worry about the relationships that are actually good for you. You need to get with the person who's going to like who's going to get you something basically mm-hmm. and especially considering the fact that with all of the sort of creepy unnerving leering that the series has done with shizuku yeah it, i mean it's basically ter- it's like don't be with somebody who's emotionally supportive get with the hot girl yeah which is i don't know it's a little unnerving to me i also th- this sort of segues um i'm i can't figure out i'm trying i'm trying to figure out why this show hasn't connected with me or as far as i can tell most people right um and there's there's a couple of things that i'm starting to notice more one uh when was the last time that it seemed as though our main characters were having fun while dancing um well I want to say most episodes because they are generally they generally always have to make the aside of oh he's smiling yeah so but why is he smiling though right so right my the the thing that I'm starting to notice is when they smile they're smiling like I am happy that I'm standing out or right. I'm happy that my partner is keeping up with me. But, like, no, at, at no point have they really expressed, boy, I sure like dancing. It's fun to dance. I would do it even if I didn't win. Um, right. It's, it's all about, like, I need to be the best. I need to stand out. I need to shine. And it, it sort of feels like they skipped a step where you say, okay, but why? Like, right. what got you to the point where you needed to be number one at this thing that you don't seem to enjoy, but is a lot of work and... Right. I don't know. Like, I, I think that's definitely... Like, Gaju's whole story kind of relates to that. Because, again, in this episode, we find out that Gaju never really wanted to dance. In fact, even in this episode... Like, in this flashback, we see him even complaining to his teacher, like, I don't, like, whoever is into this is stupid. Like, I mean, again, he's like a six-year-old kid or something like that. Yeah. When he's saying that, you know, it's like, this is, like, why is this more tiring than, like, playing soccer or, like, basketball or something like that? Yeah. Um, but, you know, and then after that, he just continues to keep dancing. 
Well, right. And so the reason he says that is because he, after he got second place at a competition, one of the judges said that, you know, he really stands out, that he stood out more than anybody at the competition. Right. And that he should still keep doing it. So, like, what did he, what did he enjoy about dancing? Not dancing. He enjoyed being complimented and being right. told that he is exciting to watch. You know, so it's right. not about the thing itself. And I think that's what bothers me is because, like, a lot of times sports anime work well because you get to sort of share the joy that the main characters have just in being able to uh, play the sport they love at a high right. level. And I don't feel like there's any joy in the show. Right. I, I guess the the one thing I will say is that the series, like... I, sorry if I'm getting a little weight, like, a little too philosophical here. And I guess you can maybe wonder, like, where does joy even come from, I guess? Like, in a lot of these shows. Because in a lot of these shows, it's basically just, oh, I'm just having so much fun playing this sport. Why are you having fun, though? I guess is the question. And I mean, I guess that is sort of the answer that a lot of sports series come to eventually. Because they like playing in the group. They like... They found some, you know, they found a social group. They found, like, meaning. They found self-confidence. Something like that. Um, and I guess in this, it's supposed to be that they stand out, but they're not driving in the whole... They're not driving in the actual, like, journey of making it to that realization, essentially. Yeah, yeah it's like, it's where you start. So Tadara never started with i enjoy dancing because dancing is fun uh my friends like dancing it sure is fun to dance he started with i want to stand out like those people right and i actually don't have a problem with that like if that's what gets you to get into the sport i think that's an interesting idea the problem is that they haven't gone beyond that um, yeah, like, they just sort of keep talking about it over and over. Right, exactly. It's just like, oh, he just really enjoys standing out. He really yeah, enjoys... Yeah, and like, look, look at Shizuku. She sure is standing out. And, right. and then cut to Tadara, and Tadara's like, oh no, I am no longer standing out. And we're like, <laughs> okay, we get it. Right. But and again, like... I, and I just want to shift briefly before we move on, is that I think part of the reason that's frustrating is that we have a lot of characters declare who is and is not standing out. Right. Um, but the only way we know that is by them declaring it. Like, the the show does a bad job of visually communicating what is compelling right. dancing. And part of the reason we discussed this uh, beforehand was we're starting to notice how infrequently uh, the characters are dancing to the music that is being played while they dance. Right. Like, like they'll so they'll they'll say oh we're gonna dance to the slow foxtrot great but what do they play they play a techno track that doesn't match up with the dance moves at all <laughs> yeah, why exactly. do, do they think that ballroom music is too boring like do they think that maybe I don't know I can't imagine they couldn't get ballroom music it's not like right I mean I would imagine a lot of that is public domain at this point yeah there's more than enough that you could just get for free yeah exactly and i it's like i guess because they're afraid that like without the um 
they really want to use the music to try and force an emotion, I think, out of a scene. Because, you know, they want you to feel the intensity. And maybe that's yeah. difficult to do with, like, a slow <laughs> foxtrot. Yeah, exactly. Or if it's just, like, something upbeat and peppy but the characters are supposed to be like i gotta push it to the limit and, <laughs> and they're just like doing the foxtrot you know right <laughs> but it's like it doesn't show a lot of confidence in the actual sport that they are portraying right. if i can use a good example of a show that does this uh yuri on ice does this amazingly well you know say whatever mm-hmm. else you we will about you know we'll say whatever you know we have our criticisms of it but I think something that Yuri on Ice just absolutely nailed was capturing the intensity of every single moment during mm-hmm. uh, during a routine by using the actual music that would most likely be playing. You know, they put a lot mm-hmm. of effort into building that world and to, like, use creative editing solutions in order to, like, sort of convey that issue. Like, Yeah, and convey... even, if, even if the music was peppy, because you got to, like, focus on their facial expressions and you heard some internal monologue, like... We were not under the impression that they weren't serious about it, you know? Right. Like, they were able to animate it in a way that you could see the physical strain, but still have it paired up to, like, a relatively lighthearted song. Yeah, It's not impossible. It's just, it feels strange, uh, because part of the reason that we thought that Welcome to the Ballroom as an anime existed was because it was following on the momentum of Yuri on Ice. That's, I think... A lot of the reason that there was hype surrounding Welcome to the Ballroom right. was because people were saying, yes, it's the next Yuri on Ice. And then what did they do? Make it nothing like Yuri on Ice. Like It feels like they were being set up for success and they just chose to go in the least optimal direction. I don't think you can place that entirely on the production company sure. for that. It is based just, on a manga. I get it's it. It's based off of a manga. And I think people were generally just getting by that by the fact it's like, oh, it's really well uh, animated routine dancing. That's, ba- that's kind of like figure skating. You know, people were kind of making yeah. those own connections in their head. Um... But it's kind of funny because in a like in a sort of series where you have very like well-toned, well-dressed men, it does very little to appeal to any sort of base. Like well, yeah, they're like... some they're somehow like tall and muscular and uh, deeply unattractive. Yeah, <laughs> kind <laughs> like, of. They're not they're not hot. They're not cute. I mean, I'm talking about animated boys, uh, but like I, I see what you're saying. Y- you know, like the design choice they went with was to make them sort of gangly and abstract and right, not that fun to look at. Where it's because it's it's weird because this is the exact sort of like series that would appeal to like the sort of Fujoshi crowd. Well, not just. But, the, I mean, like it, it. It has the potential for a wide appeal because it's. Right. It, it can. It could draw on sports anime fans. It could draw draw on, like you said, Fujoshi fans. It could draw on people who are outside the anime mainstream who are just interested in dancing and like would right. want to see a well animated dance. But like it did none of those things. Anyway, we're just we're making serious criticisms at this point. Uh, the episode <laughs> was like fine but problematic which is you know could go for most episodes of this show yeah uh so i'm just gonna move on to dive please all right so dive episode 10 our main man uh yoichi wants to talk to the chairman of the japanese swim federation uh and his dad says no but then he does it anyway um (laughs) separately uh an american man asks a 
question to Osaki about something, and she says, okay. Uh, <laughs> and then Tomo falls off the diving board and hurts his head somehow, uh, but he's fine. And, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, Yoichi drops out of the Olympics. I'm just trying to keep track. Yoichi drops out of the Olympics because he wants to compete again because he felt like he was handed it for no good reason. Uh, and they're ultimately forced to undergo a new Olympic trial. So, uh, Yoichi and, uh, Tomo are going to face off for the Olympic trial to see who's really the best in Japan, I guess. Right. Uh, and so the reason that, Oh yeah. And Okitsu. Thank you. Um, so the reason <laughs> that my summary was so disjointed was because I, I could not follow the random series of events that were going on in this episode. Yeah. Like, so you it, had this, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no. So it, it went straight from this strange scene where Asaki is talking to, a guy in English, and he says, uh, the swim facilities in America are better, and then they say something else and cut away, and then Asaki says, okay. You don't know right. what she's saying okay to. Of course, Tomo concludes, oh, she's going to abandon me and go to America. Uh, but since we didn't hear the whole conversation, the audience clearly knows that's definitely not what she said. Uh, right. But he's so distressed about the possibility of his beloved coach <laughs> going to America that he falls off a diving platform, which is kind of what you do in diving. But somewhere in the process of falling off the diving platform, yeah. he got hurt right. in a way that was never specified. But then by the end of the episode, he was fine and he was going to the Olympic trials. <laughs> Well, don't forget, we lost a few months in there where they had a competition. They had the Japan-China meet, and yeah, they just so there's this whole scene. Uh, there's this whole scene where basically uh, Yoichi's talking to the chairman, and the chairman basically puts uh, imposes some uh, like he, his challenge is basically you have two chances to make it to the Olympics. Uh, anybody who's able to score a, a like an over four thirty score at either the Japan-China meet and or the Olympic trials. I will take to the Olympics, basically. I will take to the Olympics as a backup to uh, Terremoto. Um, and then, like, after that, it's, like, months pass, and then suddenly we're at the Japan-China meet, where we hear through Tomo that they lost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, like, none of them made it. Yeah, um, yeah. without seeing anything happen there, it's just about a 10-second clip of, like, oh, well, I didn't get 4.30, so... Right. You know... You know, whatever, that happens, but I would... And, like, so I see what the series is trying to do here. Like, they're trying to paint this as being sort of teenage rebellion, I guess. Like, you know, they're kind of forced into this world of adults, you know, they've been led around all their lives, you know, they... But, you know, they've never been able to enjoy the sport the way that they've wanted to. So, you know, Tomo has sort of redefined what that means to everybody. It's not so much about just making it to the, it's like you have to make you have to fight against your own personal limits in order to like to really be happy essentially. Like it's not about what they want, it's about what you want. Fine. I get that. Where did any of this come from? Yeah. Um like I just this is all just sort of come from nowhere. It feels like and we have not had like 
So last episode we had talked about this a little bit, where apparently Tomo was depressed, right? And that was never capitalized on. It was never brought up again in the episode. Just apparently Tomo was super depressed. Yeah. Um, and then in this episode, it feels like they're continuing to ignore that. But then all of a sudden, he gets depressed with Coach Asaki. Well, yeah. Potentially and, leaving. And he, he sort of explains, oh, why was I depressed about the Olympics? It wasn't because I didn't get into the Olympics. It was because I realized that getting into the Olympics wouldn't be breaking through a limit. Like, I had to decide, I I had to make my own limits, which I didn't hate the reasoning, but it also seemed to, like, kind of try to tie everything in a neat little bow, um, where, what, what do we have now at the end of the episode? Like, despite everything everyone said with how the Olympics are just an adult institution and they're not really going to show you how to break through your limits and become an independent person, uh, what's their goal? To defeat each other and become the one to go to the Olympics. Right. Like, they're still using the Olympics as their metric for Mm -hmm. breaking through their limits. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's not so much that they don't want to go to the Olympics, it's just that they want to go to the Olympics, I guess, on their own terms. Right. Which, I mean, I guess... Oh, their own terms? You mean the terms that were dictated by the chairman? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that's... The series is very confused in its messaging. Yeah. Um, not only that, I feel like making Tomo this super insightful, suddenly, like, kid that has it all together, you know, he, he's the one who sort of sees everything for what it is now. You know, that is not the character who started this series. Yeah, you know, it's that, very recent that he's just become the wise one who's mentoring everybody. It's like, yeah, since when? Yeah, since when? It's like, Tomo was a much more compelling character when he was so uncertain about everything. You know, when he was acting like a junior high student. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, you know, this is a story about growing up, and that's fine, but he's just, he's kind of grown up suddenly without really, like, he, like, we don't see that process now. Like, we've kind of got the steps to it, but it's just, it's not working anymore, because they're not going, they're not putting in the work anymore to grow the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I I think that's sort of where I'm at. I don't I don't even know with this show anymore. Um, it was it's fine, but I feel like what what we liked about it was that it was an authentic. It originally it, it felt like a more authentic reading of how junior high and younger high school guys would interact and talk about life and that sort of thing. Um, And I was looking forward to that side of it. It ended up becoming sort of a simplistic sports anime where, like, a couple of buddies just want to be the best. And, you know, I I, I felt like it could have done a lot more. And it's sort of resigning itself to not do anything. Yeah, kind of sort of resigning itself to mediocrity. Yeah, exactly. It's telling, it's basically, it it had an interesting premise and it's taking the least interesting approach to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, a show that is not taking the least interesting approach, considering its mediocre premise, Fastest Finger <laughs> First. Um, all right, so Fastest Finger First, episode 10. Uh, this is uh, the the beginning of the final round. Uh, initially, a lot of people 
are debating over whether or not they should kick out Akira or whether his behavior is acceptable and they ultimately decide to like prove it in the ring or whatever. Right. Um, so for the final round, there's 18 competitors remaining. They get split into groups of nine based on their paper test scores. Um, so Fukami and Sasajima are in the first group uh, and the, uh, the format is, and this is the quote, uh, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. <laughs> you know, the old quiz format that everyone You know that old so chestnut. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so the, the basic, basically how it works is it's a two-part test where the first part is a multi-part answer. You can get points for uh, every answer you get correct for a multi-part question. And then after that, um, it's a fastest finger first where... Uh, the person who buzzes in first has the opportunity for three points, uh, and everyone else can also answer for one point. But you can separately, if you are the, the fastest finger and you get points, you can either keep the points for yourself or you can remove points from your opponents. Um, so that sort of sets up the competition. Uh, Sasajima ends up blazing ahead of everyone else and uh, taking the points for himself until he... Uh, deducts one from uh, Tozuka, who, let's be honest, doesn't matter. Um, right. <laughs> uh, ultimately, Fukami uh, finds out about uh, Sasajima's history of being in Kaijo with her older brother, and she's sort of thrown off by that. But then she's reminded to get her head in the game, and she does, and she almost wins, but then she doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, that's basically the episode. Um, so I spent, like, most of that time just explaining the rules of the round because, gosh, they're so intricate. Like, right? I didn't even I didn't even say it all. There's just, like, the amount of nuance that goes into creating all these different um, quiz formats, I think, is almost more interesting than the plot thread itself sometimes. Yeah, kind of. Like, it's... Because it's like, I can almost see, like, this would actually be kind of fun to get together and play with friends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I was thinking, like, man, if part of the fun of doing Quiz Bowl is having groups come together and devise the weirdest quiz formats they can and then try to, like, outmaneuver each other and figure out how to manipulate the rules, that sounds pretty fun. Like, if they're not just doing the same format, same rules every right. time. You know, part of the, the the game is figuring out how to play these random formats that people come up with. That sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it kind of also... So I think the biggest complaint I have heard from people who have sort of seen it, like, in passing, like when I'm around my apartment, apartment and I have somebody over and I was just watching something. Uh, it's actually happened more than once. And people are like, so wait, why aren't they just answering the questions? Why don't they just... It's like, it's a trivia game, right? Why aren't they just... Uh, Discuss yeah. like why aren't they just waiting for the question to be read? Yeah, uh, and it's like, well, that's not really the point. Like, and I'm seeing that now with this, like, with each new different quiz format that comes out. It's kind of you can like, if, especially if they're using a lot of the same questions over and over again, you have to think of new ways to make it interesting. Um, and I think that's the real strength of Quiz Bowl. It seems like, or at least Japanese Quiz Bowl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I did also like the fact that the episode was sort of, like, it decided not to make a judgment on Akira's play style in this one. Mm -hmm. uh, because they mentioned, because the, the be very beginning of the episode, you had the, uh, the Leonil, uh, 
Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't know, know how to pronounce it either. Yeah. Leonile? You know, the, Leonile? Yeah, the Leonile. Like, they are, like, super upset about it. But they also seem to be the only ones who care that much beyond mm-hmm. just the, uh... Beyond just, you know, the people, you know, the team that he's on. Because it's like, yeah, the... Uh, uh, Leon Neal's rivals, uh, yeah, you know, they were cool with it. They were like, hey, that was kind of an interesting style. I think we're going to try and steal that for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and I like that. Like, I like the fact that, you know, there's this sort of internal debate going on between, like, the people who create the game, essentially, who sort of evolve the game. They're kind of, like, Akira has sort of opened their eyes in some ways, you know, it's like, you know, this is a new way that you can play. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, like, it's fine. Like, if we don't make a rule specifying that you can't do this, who are we to complain? There's this sort of conflict between the old guard and this sort of new generation, you know, the old guard wants to adhere to the classic play style, whereas the, uh, the newcomers are like, eh, whatever, like, it's just the rules, like, who ca-? it's like, it's just etiquette, it doesn't actually mean anything in a game. Yeah, I mean, I I appreciated that. I, I appreciate the fact that hopefully this show isn't going to focus too deeply on, oh, Akira sure is weird or whatever road they could go down. Uh, they did show him, like, basically skipping out on the final round to go um, start cross-dressing. Right. I hope that the show doesn't have him just sort of, like, burst in and be like, look at me, you know, sort of, and have everybody freak out about it. Um, right. I, I think probably they were trying... I mean, hopefully they were trying to communicate, oh, Akira just got bored and left. <laughs> it was sort of like, eh, I'm over it. Like, everyone's getting too hyped up. Everybody's, like, I'm getting their feelings hurt about me. I was just here to mess around. Um, and he just ditches. Uh, so I hope that happens because, honestly, at this point, seeing... One, I want to learn more about, like, Sasajima's history with Kaijo. Cool. Um, as well as seeing how the round ends up, that's going to be the most interesting thing to me. And I think that's more than enough material to carry them through the last two episodes. Right. At the same time, though, you know, they are building up Akira to be a major rival of Koshiyama as well. So, and I don't think that they would have been putting in all this effort, uh, to kind of build up Akira's character and their play style just to just have, uh, Akira just ditch on the final day or Fair during enough. the finals. Fair enough. Speaking of something that's disinterested in competition, uh, how about Clean Freak Aoyama-kun, episode 10? Ooh, okay. Well, I am not excited to talk about this, despite the inflection of my voice. Um, Okay, so this episode covers more of Aoyama's personal life. We find out he has a friend from from his old, like, uh, national team days, or his national training camp days. Uh, His name is Seigo. He actually attends uh, Oshigami Minami High School, where, you know, Takechi is at as well. Uh, he and Seigo, uh, he being Aoyama, have, like, practice matches, it sounds like, almost every day. Or since uh, Seigo got back from uh, playing in a Spanish Junior League. Uh, and uh, what we find out is that Aoyama can't beat Seigo, so Aoyama's been cooking for Seigo. However, Seigo's also having problems with his girlfriend, Kozue. Uh, and Aoyama is determined to kind of help work their, help them kind of work out their issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and the end of the episode, after Aoyama gives them a bunch of bad advice, apparently they just get over it, essentially, because Aoyama made them play together in a match. 
Um, and then the episode ends, and Aoyama still can't beat Sego. So, Matt, uh, despite your dismissive tone, you did tell me earlier this week that this was your favorite episode of the show. <laughs> well, now, defend is, yourself. Favorite is relative. Oh, of it, course. I understand. <laughs> like, it is not, like... It was not a particularly great episode. However... I will say this, they had jokes that were constructed and had a punchline. Hmm. That is more than what we have gotten out of the series that I think we have ever seen. So I'm kind of... <laughs> like, so there's this whole gag about how Sego is, like, misunderstanding what his girlfriend is doing for him, essentially. So... Like, he, like, the reason that they're fighting is because Sego is messing with the food that uh, Kozui is making for him. And, you know, he's, like, putting, like, mayo all over it because it doesn't taste very good. Alright, so, uh, Sego approaches Kozue with a gift that Aoyama suggested. Uh, and, you know, you think it's gonna, and, you know, it's like, oh, so is this, like... Like, what's this gift going to be? And, you know, her reaction is, oh, you know, it's like, does he finally understand what I've been doing for him? Thank you so much. And the gift is a beginner's cookbook, essentially. Which is, you know, there is actually a multi-layered joke to that, mm -hmm. weirdly enough. Because, okay, so they kind of set it up kind of obviously with the fact, like, oh, he did it. He, like, he finally understands me. What? He doesn't understand me? So it's like, there's a gag there, and yeah, it's tired and old. However, there is another layer to that gag, which is the fact that it was due to Aoyama's suggestion. So it's not just that Sego doesn't understand it. It's that Aoyama, like, Sego doesn't seem, seems to be oblivious to all of this and that he's just following what a, whatever Aoyama says. Aoyama himself does not seem to understand the issue. Yeah. Which, which is, is a first because he's supposed to be perfect at everything. Yeah, exactly. So he clearly doesn't seem to understand what their problem is. Not only that, before the episode, he suggests that he wears a cat suit to a date because, according to Aoyama, cats make everything better. Like, nobody is mad looking at a cat. So naturally, of course, he needs to wear a cat costume on a, you know, a nice romantic date. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a joke. It's a joke at the expense of Aoyama, which is something. Like, can, can I tell you my, my two issues with this episode? Please, by all means. Okay. I'm just going to cut you off because uh, I want to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, number one is, I guess we can just talk about Oyama since you just were. He seems like he's gotten progressively less human over the course right. of the show. Like, that was sort of part of the premise is that people wanted to figure out where Oyama lived and, you know, what his life was like outside of school um and they never did and all we got was like him being confused about social norms and playing soccer and not having any human connection to anyone um i don't know there was just something about it like the show's refusal to make him human is i guess supposed to be like a joke that he's sort of separated from the real world but since none of the jokes work, I don't see the point of making him so abstract. Like, I, right. I know everyone in this universe is impressed with the perfection that is Aoyama-kun, um, but the audience isn't, you know? He doesn't right. actually come across that way for us, so the fact that they keep him so unknowable 
at this point it like it's being treated as a joke unto itself his unknowability but it's not a funny joke it's just sort of redundant right i don't know if i agree with that to be honest oh man (laughs) so my issue so here's my takeaway from it like aoyama is sort of like okay so if the joke is that aoyama is sort of this sort of like distant person from everybody you know he has trouble making like human you know he has an issue understanding what people are like or you know we have a trouble understanding him because he seems so inordinately perfect um so if that's the case like everything we've seen about aoyama has always been to justify his own behavior, you know, there was always some sort of central wisdom to what he did. His so, you know, like, it's sort of a play on the uh, on the old Russian like uh, narrative trope of the wise idiot. Like, it, they're sort of the per- the person who's so dumb or seemingly so dumb that they don't. But you know, there there's a wisdom to everything that they're doing. Um, that's not quite Aoyama because again, he's too perfect to be the wise idiot. He's kind of more the wise weirdo that everybody sort of idolizes. This episode showed him being flawed, at the very least. We saw him lose to Sego. You know, he's not an umso- he's not unstoppable when it comes to soccer. He has his limits. He can't beat Sego. Uh, he doesn't understand Sego either. He doesn't know what the issue is between he and his, him and his girlfriend. That does humanize him to me just a little bit. Like, yeah. now, admittedly, his weird strategy eventually works out between Sego and Kozue because apparently all they had to do was play soccer with one another and get out some of their aggression and they were fine after that. Mm-hmm. Which is still a little kind of dumb because I don't really get the connection there. But at the very least, Aoyama doesn't actually seem like this sort of perfect walking anime trope anymore. He actually does have some limits. Yeah. I mean, it's fair. I just, I mean, I don't find it particularly compelling because I don't feel like they're going to wrap it up in an interesting way. Oh, they are not. Like, (laughs) I don't, I have no... Like, I, when I'm saying this, I am talking about just within the context of this episode. Um, like, because there's no way that they're actually going to make this, like, satisfying in any way whatsoever. The show has not shown it to have any form of self-awareness about, like, its characters. It was just in this one instance I felt like Aoyama was a little less perfect. Mm-hmm. So the, the other issue I had uh, was with the characterization of Kozue. Okay. Because... It seemed clear that every, every time she was able to express her feelings, it was that even though she, uh, Sego didn't understand her, she loved him anyway, and all she ever wanted to do was to uh, learn everything she could to support his soccer so that he could be the best possible, and the, oh, only, dream, the only dream she had was being someone who was useful to him and he didn't even appreciate it um but she but she didn't mind as long as he ate her food she was happy um sort of like how much more can you take away the individuality 
of a person and like she seems to have like a strong personality and she like right. has a personal history and she has like you know good character design and all this stuff uh but at the end of the day her all of her dreams and goals surround making sego happy and useful right I get the sense that they're trying to play into the joke that Sego understands so little that he doesn't even understand how his clearly girlfriend, like, how much she really, like, how mm -hmm. much he really means to her. But you're also not wrong in that, like, you're still, like, you're supposed to sympathize with her in this sort of situation. Like, you're supposed to be like, oh, like, why doesn't he just understand her feelings? Like... Like, why doesn't he acknowledge that? Meanwhile, he's kind of allowed to just sort of have his own pie-in-the-sky like you know pie in the sky goals of, you know, playing, like, soccer on the national level, you know, completely independent of her. Whereas all of her goals are entirely dependent off of him. And, yeah, I do see where you're coming from there. Um, it's, it's definitely uncomfortable, <laughs> at the very mm -hmm. least. Um, and I don't... I'm not big on the fact that Sego, like, and I think the most damning aspect of that is that Sego, like, ends the episode without continuing not to understand it. Yeah, he didn't learn anything or become in any way, like, gain any empathy with her right. questions or feelings, and she's just sort of okay with it. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, her problem was that she just needed to kind of calm down a little bit. She just needed to work out her aggression. <laughs> yeah, and then the moment that she calmed down, I mean, quote-unquote calmed down, uh, I'm not sure if we should even be using that term, but, like, to, to describe it, like, the moment that she was kind of happy again, Aoyama was like, okay, are you done with your woman feelings now? I'm gonna play soccer with him. Yeah, and that's that's definitely not good. <laughs> like, well, yeah, that's... it's just sort of it, it makes Aoyama not a fun character and just sort of right. a jerk. Who the only reason he was helping Sego was to make girls' woman feelings go away so he could keep playing with his friend. Right, and it's like, hey man, it's like kind of a like forgive the language here, but a little bit of bros before hoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is not what I was hoping for with this uh, show. Right. Uh, but at least we have Big Windup. Um, True so, enough. So it's the top of the ninth in Big Windup episode 23. Uh, Abe is able to realize that uh, they're not throwing fork balls anymore, so he waits on a fastball. He's able to get out in front of it. He gets to first. He's driven over to second. They bunt to get people on second and third. Um Ultimately, uh, there's two outs with runners on second and third for Nishiura. Um, Tose's pitcher is already convinced he's going to win the game. He just needs to throw a strike uh, and, excuse me, throw a sinker to Tajima. Right. Uh, but Tajima, although he's struck out on sinkers before, is able to extend his bat further than ever and drive a fly ball to left, scoring two runs. So Nishiura goes into the bottom of the ninth, leading... Five to four, and they just need three outs to win the game. Right. Um, so, again, like, I, I kind of hate to keep retreading old ground here. This episode was good. Not really a whole lot going on on it beyond just sort of the basic plot. Yeah. Um, I liked... The, the couple couple things I liked was... Um, so Mizutani, when he... He was the one who had to lay down the bunt to get 
uh, drive the runners over to second and third. Right. What what I liked was that he, you know, he had lost some confidence. He'd, he'd popped up bunts before, um, but even, even though he had had that history, um, they had some information that he didn't need to worry about the fork ball. They told him they believed him, whatever, whatever, and... He they had the confidence in his bunting to put him up there to bunt on a with two strikes, um, for, because if you don't know if you lay down a bunt with two strikes, it doesn't count as a foul ball. It counts as a strikeout. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Um, so that's why that was important, um, because basically they just want to avoid it in the rules, so you can't just stand up there and bunt forever. Right. Uh, until you get one to work like it, it sort of discourages unlimited bunting right. um, so if he hadn't bunted that in fair territory he would have been out uh, okay but despite that they still you know he had the confidence they had the confidence in him to let him bunt so i thought that was sort of a cool process to watch um i also liked the approach that tajima had uh when he was able to finally get uh, a hit on the sinker where he knew that it was outside of like he literally could not swing the bat to the point where the sinker crossed the plate. Um, right. But so what he was able to do was, as he was swinging, he slipped the bat through his hand. So he was really only holding it with his left hand. Uh, but he had the moment enough momentum to just get the bat on the ball and put it somewhere. Right. Um, so I thought that was a fun strategy. I mean, like part of the fun of this show is just seeing each team adapt to the other and right. figure out what works. Um, so I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I kind of like the... Fa- something I liked about Tajima in this episode was, like, he was sort of weirdly quiet when he was going up to bat. Mm-hmm. Like, and I know we've kind of seen that from him before, but there it had sort of an added weight to it this episode because you knew how much, like, of this game was pretty much leaning on Tajima getting that hit. Right. Um, okay, especially because we know we have not actually seen him, like, get anything this game, despite him being the ace batter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I kind of like that sort of added weight, like, that sort of added dramatic tension given to Tajima's usual lack of style, or lack of noise going up to plate, you know, kind of just being there in the zone. Mm-hmm. Um, which was kind of neat to see. Um, yeah, it was also cool because uh, so Tose's coach immediately realized that he messed up by even letting Tajima bat because right. there's runners on second and third with two outs. He could have just walked Tajima and faced Hanai. Um, and of course, what happens next? Tajima is totally all over it. He's stealing second, but Hanai is so intimidated by the sinker that he ends up striking out on three pitches. Uh, so what would have happened if they had just walked Tajima uh, Tose would have won. Yeah. Almost certainly. Um, because <laughs> Hanai would not have been up to the challenge. Like, he could not have handled that sinker or, you know, let's be honest, the pressure. Um, right. So it was cool to see sort of, like, how that mistake enabled, like, only Tajima was able to take advantage of that mistake. Right. And it's kind of interesting, too, because, like, so in a lot of sports anime, like, it's kind of in traditional, like, battle, like, sh- like sort of shonen-style battle sports anime. Uh, like, every team is always operating at 100%, essentially. Like, because it, it's less about the actual, like, game itself, and it's almost more of, like, a clash of wills and ideology. 
Um, so, you know, sometimes you'll get some things like, oh, you know, we underestimated them. We shouldn't have underestimated them. But you don't really see how that actually affects the match. It's sort of more of, like, a sort of general excuse of, oh, we underestimated them and they were actually really good. Let's pick it up from here and then we'll get into the game at, like, a pure, like, even level. Um... In this, though, you can actually really see how their underestimation is really affecting their game because they underestimated, like, Tajima's ability to actually hit that sinker. And you can kind of see that as well through just, um, you know, before uh, the pitcher goes up to throw, you know, before he throws to uh, Tajima, like, he's not even thinking about the the game itself. He's thinking yeah. about, like, I just want this game to be over. Like, yeah, he's thinking about what he's going to do and how he's going to get ready for the next game after they win. Right, exactly. It's like, he's just so not mentally present there. And I love that they actually have that scene just showing that without really explaining, like, oh, you know, his head's not in the game, like, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. Yeah, they don't need anyone to talk about it. It's obvious, you know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't know. It was good. Uh, I'm looking forward to this game wrapping up, seeing how uh, things shake out. Yeah. Um, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. All right. See you next week. Later. Our logo design is by James Ratcliffe. The theme music is Fly High by Burnout Syndromes, covered and performed by Luke Bartka. You can follow Koshiencast on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and our email is koshiencast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll be back next week with the best and worst from the world of sports anime, and until then, keep training.